All right, let's pray. Father, thank you that you are faithful, you are true, you are trustworthy. And here we find Paul uh, nearing the end of his life and yet able to look back on decades of your faithfulness so that he is able to know whom he has believed. And he is able to, he's convinced that he can trust you to guard that which he has entrusted to you until that day. And Father, that's true for us today as well. And so we worship you as we come to, to look at this. And Father, I, I pray that we would be able to see you, that we would see you in your glory this morning as we consider this chapter. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so last week when we were looking at the introduction to this book, we talked about and we, we considered how it is different. There's a, there's a marked difference between 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. So 1 Timothy, Paul is free. Uh, he is mobile. He is he's no longer in prison. He is able to carry on ministry. And he is, frankly, he's right back to his old ways prior to when he went in custody to Rome. He is, he's left Titus at Crete. He has left Timothy at Ephesus. He is traveling about in the Dalmatian region. He's going, he wants to spend the winter at Nicopolis, which is basically, um, it would be near uh, modern day Dubrovnik there in uh, Serbia, uh, the former Yugoslavian uh, nation. And yet now when we come to 2 Timothy, uh, that's no longer the same. Paul is back in custody. And in fact, uh, much more so, frankly, than he was to begin with in Rome. Uh, he'll mention later in this book that uh, he's already once been delivered from the mouth of the lion. And so he had, he's already faced execution once. Uh, he expects to face it again, and frankly, he expects that he is going to be martyred. That is his expectation. And so he is summoning Timothy. Timothy, I would like you to come. Now, that is probably for Paul's consolation. You know, he talks about, uh, as, as we're going to see, uh, he recalls Timothy's tears. He longs to see him. He's praying for him night and day. But it is also very likely, every bit as much, if not more frankly, for Timothy's encouragement. Now, we have letters, we have two letters from Paul to Timothy. We have a letter from Paul to Titus that are um, here in Scripture. It is very likely that there were communications back to Paul from Timothy. Paul here is, is going to, uh, it's interesting, I don't know if you caught this last week as we were reading, Paul commends Timothy once in this book. Paul has a lot of admonition and exhortation for Timothy in this book. And we're going to run right into that here in chapter 1. And so Paul is concerned about Timothy. Timothy has got some um, either a character trait or he's realizing what he's up against as he sees this lived out in the life of Paul. Again, where is Paul as he's writing this? He's in prison. Why? Why is he there? He's preaching the gospel. And the gospel is an offensive method, message when you're talking to the Roman Empire. It's an offensive message to just about anybody. It's offensive because... It points out people's sin. It points out their dire condition, right? If Timothy sees this happening to Paul, then what is one logical conclusion that Timothy could draw regarding himself? Yeah, 
if they'll do this to Paul, what is to keep this from happening to me? And that is a legitimate question. And it's one that, it's one thing to, to think about that hypothetically. It's another to think about that when it's happened to this guy, it's happened to this guy, it's happened to this guy. And so again, um, this, this is a serious thing and Paul is taking it seriously and he's treating it seriously. So he wants to make sure that he is doing everything that he can not to, uh, not to have Timothy look at something through rose-colored glasses. You need to, this is a realistic assessment here. He's going to tell him in chapter 3, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That's not an if. That's a when. And Timothy, you need to, to suck it up because that's what you've been called for. So, Paul begins, let's, let's, let's read our chapter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. Now, Paul, again, this is, kind of a, this is somewhat of a standard greeting. But Paul never wastes a greeting. Why is it? Now, Paul knows Timothy, right? They're very well known to each other. So does Paul need to go back and when he, when he is writing this letter to Timothy, does he need to remind Timothy that he's actually an apostle? Is he, is he concerned that that has somehow slipped Timothy's mind? So why put it there? Okay, it establishes his authority and authority granted by God himself. Now, have you ever found yourself in a position where when all of a sudden when things, when the, when the slogging gets difficult, do you find that it is helpful to remember why it is that you are slogging? 
I don't know if I just made up a word or not, but I've heard it somewhere. Does it, does it not help to remember, why is it that I'm doing this? Paul, here, is reminding Timothy, I'm an apostle. I am a sent out one. I am a delegate on behalf of God, according to God's will, and it's according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. We talked about this last week. Here's Paul, you know, facing death. It's not imminent. It, we, we can probably assume that it's not imminent. Paul's not thinking that this is something that's going to happen any moment. If it was something that was going to happen any moment, why would he tell Timothy, hey, Timothy, I need you to take several weeks in order to get here from Ephesus uh, just to be able to, to talk about this a little bit. Anybody have any idea how far it is from Ephesus to Rome? As the crow flies, it's about 830 miles. Now, 830 miles is a long ways when you're walking. If you want to drive from Ephesus to Rome, it is 1,255 miles, which is about the distance from San Diego to Seattle. So it's going to take Timothy a while to get this letter and put his affairs in order and head to Rome. And so realistically, I don't think Paul's thinking that this is something that's going to happen here in the next few days but it's going to happen and so Timothy you need to remember how God has assigned me Paul is going to use his example here in order to encourage Timothy because Timothy is in the same spot and so Timothy I'm putting these things in your mind so that you will remember and you will take them to heart and you'll apply them to yourself. Timothy's going to need grace and mercy and peace. Now think about those for a moment. Grace. What's grace? Favor. Favor. There's something here, that there's, there's something I'd like to put in your mind. I'd like to put in your mind grace as Paul uses it, as Jesus uses it in 2 Corinthians 12. My grace is sufficient for you for my strength, my power is made perfect in weakness. And so the idea here, thinking of grace as power, God gives us the ability, the strength, the power to do what we should in time of need. And so it's, it's more than favor. It's, it's actually enablement in order to be able to do what we need to be able to do. That's why Paul can say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me because I have his grace. Therefore, I'm not able just to get by. I am able to overwhelmingly conquer mercy, God's benevolent care, peace, that calm when the storm is blowing. That's not a bad thing to wish somebody. Now Paul, again, is going to go through here and he's going to pull on a number of threads. So when he says here in verse 3, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience. Now, have we heard Paul talk about clear conscience before to Timothy? I was kind of hoping for some vigorous head nodding here. Does anybody remember? Again, that is actually throughout 1 Timothy. So if you go back and you look at 1 Timothy 1.5, just flip back a couple pages real quick. 1 Timothy 1.5, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 
Later, he's going to go through verse 19, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. The idea of the clear conscience is that God does not condemn him because he is holding to the truth. There's no reason for God to come to him and uh, accuse him in his conscience because what Paul is carrying forth is the truth. He is staying faithful to the truth. And so he has a clear conscience. And he goes through it and expresses his, his care for Timothy. You know, I constantly remember you, longing to see you. And then he reminds Timothy of Timothy's own spiritual heritage. You have a sincere faith. And that word sincere uh, is, the, is literally, it's not hypocritical. It's, it's the word from which we get hypocrite with an A in front of it for, for negation. It's not hypocritical. It's genuine. You have a genuine faith. Your grandmother had it. Your mom had it. So that from your youth, as he will talk later, you have been taught the Holy Scriptures, the Holy Writings that are able to save you. And so you have this heritage. That's the good part. Timothy has a sincere faith, and Paul's not concerned about that. But he is concerned about something that's, that's a bent that Timothy has. For Verse 7. For, actually, back up to verse 6. For this reason, because you have this heritage, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. If, why has God gifted you and why has God gifted me? Why? What's the purpose of that gift? Say it out loud. To serve, to serve each other. That's right. It is, it is for, the, it's for mutual, mutual edification. It's for the body. It's on behalf of the body. So your gift is not about you. Your gift is how you are able to minister in the body of Christ. And God gives it to each and every one of us on conversion, which is a very cool thing. You are gifted specifically by God himself. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you are going to be faithful in the discharge of that duty, does it? Just because it's been given you, there's another part here that's involved too. Now, isn't there? You've got to pick it up and you've got to use it. You've got to go through and you have to be about serving. And you can, you can take the long approach when it comes to gifts and go into, you know, there's this, 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 and this. Or frankly, you can do the Peter approach. If you have a gift of speech, then you speak as the oracles of God. If you have the gift of service, you serve with the power that God provides. That's it in a nutshell. And so, Timothy, you need to take the bull by the horns here and you need to stoke the fire. How many people uh, heat with wood stoves? Ah, if you heat with a wood stove, you know all about the idea of, all right, I'm going I'm to use this damper control, right? And I'm going to limit the amount of air that's coming into the firebox here, and so it's going to cause the fire to die down a bit so it can last all night. So in the morning, there's still coals in there so that we can start the fire easily. What happens when you open that damper? All those little red things in there, you hope they're red, all of a sudden they start to glow because you are fanning the flame. You are making it to where the oxygen is there so that you can have the combustion process. I'm not going to get into a long dissertation on, on that, okay? But the idea is, is that, Timothy, stoke it up. Fan the flame. Don't get lazy. Don't get complacent. Don't, you know, 
you on your end, you keep this going and you keep this thing moving. Why? What's the temptation here that Timothy is facing? For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Now this word that's translated timidity, that is probably the kindest translation of that word. There are three Greek words that can be used for our response to God uh, when it comes to reverential awe. You know, you've, you've heard that the idea of fearing God is that idea of reverential awe, right? Okay, three words. First one, eulabea, is used twice in the New Testament. Um, and that, that's the idea of reverential submission. It's actually used of Jesus in Hebrews 5.7, where it talks about, and he was heard because of his piety. So it's translated piety there. Again, he was heard because he was submitting himself. You know, not my will, but your will be done. And so he is submitting himself to the will of the Father. It's also used in Hebrews 12, 28, and there it's translated awe. The idea here is that is the highest way in which we are able to express our submission to God. Reverential submission. The second term is the one that's used most frequently in the New Testament, and that's the word phobos. Now, we're familiar with that word, right? Because we get our word phobia from that. And phobia, phobos is the one that, it's, it's pretty wide-ranging because it can, be, it can be used to talk about the fear of the Lord. And so that incorporates this idea of reverential awe. Uh, frankly, it can also incorporate the idea of terror. Why is it, uh, according to the author of Hebrews, well, what's one reason why we should fear God? Because our God is a consuming fire. I don't know why fire is coming up so often this morning. And so phobos is kind of the utility term for fear. It can mean terror. It can incorporate, and it goes, so it goes all the way over here from terror all the way up here to the reverential awe of God, serving him because he's majestic. He is superlative in every way. So phobos is kind of the working man's word for fear. That's not the word that's used here. This is delia. Delia is the most negative of these three words. And frankly, it's only used once in the New Testament, right here. So it's a one-off as far as the Bible is concerned. But in extra-biblical sources, delia has the idea of cowardice. It is being fearful, frankly, to the point of disengaging. Um, one of my grandsons locked himself in the car uh, a little while back here. He's two years old. What was his response to being locked in the car? He was terrified to the point of inaction. He's crying. And uh, his mom is trying to comfort him on the other side of the window glass, right? She can't actually go and touch him. And she's trying to get him, would you please lift up on the button that you just pushed? Can you lift up? Couldn't do it. Wouldn't do it. And so when you, have the, when you have somebody who is so terrified that they become incapable of action, that's kind of the idea here. They don't, they don't, because they're afraid. When you see somebody, spiritually, who is in that position, to where they are paralyzed by fear, that is not from God. That's not God's spirit. 
And that's, that's kind of a telltale. If, if you find yourself in the position of, I am paralyzed, that's not from God. What is the spirit that God has given? Power. The word dunamis, from which we get the word, get a couple of words, we get dynamic and we get dynamite, comes from this term. It's God's power. That power is the ability to do what has to be done, what should be done. And so again, it's that, it ties in with, with the idea of grace, right? The ability to do where God gives us the ability to do what it is that needs to be done. But it's not just of power, it's of love. Agape, which is, again is focused on who? Is it focused on me? No, agape is always focused on another. It is, I am willing to bear adversity on behalf of another. It's the idea of self-sacrifice. And so, God's Spirit is power, the ability to do what needs to be done, coupled with love to where my focus isn't on me, it's on someone else for me to serve. And then third, this idea of discipline. Again, this word discipline, this is the only time this particular word is used in the New Testament. The idea is, it is sound judgment, sobriety, clear thinking. So God's Spirit, when you're dealing with life, when you're dealing with the conditions of life, is He gives you the power to do what's right. He gives you the attitude that you're focused on others and not on yourself. And he gives you sound judgment and clear thinking so that you can figure out how to put these things into play. That's God's spirit. So Timothy. Timothy's a young man. Remember, when we looked in 1 Timothy, um, don't let anyone look down on you because of your youthfulness. Be an example of those who believe. And so you demonstrate the gift that is in you by how you act. It's how you speak. It's how you think. It's how you act. You remember back in uh, Corinthians where Paul encourages the Corinthians, listen, I'm sending Timothy uh, as my representative. You make sure he doesn't have anything to worry about. What's the, what's the implication there? Timothy is, is not, Timothy is not the kind of guy who walks into a room and takes over. And so, you know, you Corinthians, be careful with him. So again, the idea here is you have somebody who is not the strongest, either in personality or um, he's frail. From 1, Corinthians, from 1 Timothy, we get the idea that he may be sickly. And you know what? If you're sickly, if you're prone to bad health and, and health issues, can that make you timid? Would that be an encouragement for, for, for you know, not wanting to, to step forward and just take charge? Sure. So Timothy, this is your bent and you need to combat that bent. That's on you. And so when you find yourself, you know, being tending to disengage and drop back, that is not the Spirit of God. God hasn't given us that Spirit. Here's the evidence of the Spirit that God gives. And he takes on this, and now he goes to another issue, and this is gonna be a major theme in the book. The idea of being ashamed or being unashamed. Now, what is going to be, what is one of the big characteristics? When you are ashamed of someone, what is probably the greatest characteristic? How are you going to be able to tell when someone is ashamed? They're embarrassed because of disgrace. 
Okay? You're... No eye contact. Okay? You look down. What is it that you communicate to somebody when you look them in the eye? What are you communicating? Go ahead. Confidence. Confidence? Yeah. It's, you know, we're dealing here. Um, pardon me? You don't want to speak? What do you want to avoid with someone when you are ashamed of them? There's something that you want to specifically avoid. Okay, identification with? Association. I do not want to be associated. I don't want to be identified with this guy because of what he just did. And so the, the, the big thing here with being ashamed is the person you step back. You disengage with, you know, I don't want to be associated with this person. Peter in the garden, you know, standing out warming himself by the fire. Why is he cowering in fear before a servant girl? She recognizes he was with Jesus. There is an association that's being drawn here. Someone is coming in and they're connecting dots. And Peter wants nothing to do with that. And so he lies. Because he's ashamed. Can you imagine? And, 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 and Jesus had already told him what was going to happen, right? That's why when you get into Luke... And, you know, Peter denies him three times. And then Jesus turns and he looks at Peter. And what's Peter's response? He goes out and he weeps bitterly. And so that is the content. That's the idea here. When we are ashamed, you don't want to be associated. And so Paul is going to take this on here. Therefore, Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Timothy, if you're going to associate with the gospel, if you're going to identify with Jesus Christ, then yes, you are going to suffer the scoffing, you are going to suffer the mocking, you are going to suffer the rejection of Jesus. Why? Because you identify with him. And people are going to, the things that they would do to Jesus himself, they are going to do to you. And you need to not be ashamed. And so you don't, be a you don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. You don't be ashamed of the gospel. Now, Paul has uttered words like that before, now hasn't he? If you go back into Romans, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because of the power of God unto salvation for those who believe, right? Timothy, don't be ashamed of, of the gospel. And Timothy, don't be ashamed of of me don't cower back don't turn aside and it's 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 telling here don't don't be ashamed of me his prisoner now paul is in a roman prison but why is Paul there according to Paul? Because God has put me here. I'm God's prisoner. I'm not Rome's. Boy, there's a mindset for you. Can you see how Paul, again, Paul makes choices. Paul can be in this prison 
and he can play the woe is me card. He has the ability to make that choice. Yet what does he do? He focuses on gratitude. Did you catch that back in verse 3? I thank God. You find that consistently in Paul's prison epistles. You find consistently where he looks at his situation and goes, yeah, I'm in chains, but the gospel isn't chained, and I have a captive audience. I may not be able to get away, but they sure can't get away from me. And in fact, in Philippians, what's, what's the result of that? So that the gospel has spread throughout the entire Praetorian guard. They keep changing you know, guards for me. Good. Fresh meat. And so again, the idea here is that this is how Paul chooses to look and how he chooses to perceive what he's in the middle of. Because I'm the prisoner of Christ, then I'm here as his ambassador. And I can carry on my ministry just as faithfully here as if I was spending the winter at Nicopolis like I'd planned. Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of me, but don't stop there. Join me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. So Timothy, it's like, it's, like being in the, it's like being in the military. There's a lot of people who don't mind serving in the military when there's not a war. But boy, I tell you, it's, it's a little different now, isn't it? When all of a sudden you're signing up and you know, you know, I'm going to get my training and then I'm shipping out. And I'm shipping out to combat. Timothy, join me in suffering. I am suffering. Join me in it. Why? Verse 8, verse 9. Because God has saved us and God has called us with a holy calling. Timothy, your life is not your own. You've been bought with a price. You've been called for this. You've been equipped for this. Therefore, get to it. Get after it. And he goes, and, and now he's just, and, and again, this is Paul. Paul gets on one of these, these things here, and he cannot stop. And again, he's not going to stop because, again, he's trying to encourage Timothy, the young man. God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, not because of, of, of us, right? But according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in, G- in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Does this sound familiar? Has Paul written stuff like this before? Think about Ephesians 2, right? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast, keep going, for we are his workmanship, right? That we may, we're we're carrying out the works that God has prepared for us beforehand, right? It's It's the same thought here. Timothy, you have a job. You've been equipped. You have everything that you need to do it. God has prepared this for you. Get after it. Granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 
You ever notice why Paul refers to Jesus so often as Christ Jesus? Why does he do, why does he do that? And I don't know that there's a hard answer to this. But normally when you see Peter and John, when they refer to Jesus, how do they refer to him? Jesus. Because that's how they met him. That's how they knew him. You can remember that, you know, here they are, his disciples, his followers. They're on the boat. There's a storm. Master, don't you care? We're going to die. And Jesus speaks a word, and the storm stops. And what's the response of the, of the disciples? Who is this? Who is this guy? Because they knew him as Jesus. That's how they met him. Jesus the man. Was he more than that? They had inklings of that. Peter. Remember Jesus? Hey, caught anything? No. Okay, well put your net over here. And all of a sudden he can't bring in the net because it's so full of fish. Master, depart from me for I am a sinful man. He's not normal. They haven't put together yet that he's He's God, incarnate. Paul, on the other hand, when does he meet Jesus? He doesn't meet Jesus, the man. He meets Jesus, the risen and ascended Son of God. And so I think it's, I think there's just, there's, there's, Paul has got a different view of Christ simply because how he meets him. And so the, the appearing of Christ, he's abolished death. Do you think that's going to encourage Paul as he's facing death? Oh yeah. This is, this is under his control. Verse 11, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. Preacher is a herald. He's the one who proclaims. Apostle, that's his divine authority. And a teacher. So Paul is basically acting as Ezra and the Levites back in Nehemiah chapter 8. When you have... Uh, Ezra gets up and he's on a platform that was built for the purpose and he takes and he reads the law to the people. And down amongst the crowd are a bunch of Levites. And the Levites are explaining the meaning of the law, the meaning of the text to the people as it's being read. Paul gets to incorporate all three of those things in one, which is actually a pretty cool thing. And so he, he proclaims it, he instructs it, and it's done with divine authority. And because he has been appointed by God as a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, for this reason, I also suffer these things. I'm not immune. You'll remember that back when Paul had just come into Damascus from, he's blind from his meeting with Jesus. And, and Jesus is appearing to Ananias. Do you remember what he says about Paul? Number one, he's a chosen instrument. But number two, for I will show him what things he must suffer for my namesake. There's a lot of this that, that's known to Paul ahead of time. And he still, he, he, he takes it on anyway. So Timothy, follow my example. I'm not trying to talk you into doing something that I don't have to do as well. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed. It's going to cost me everything. But I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed. There's hope. 
I mean, you, you see everything gets incorporated into that, into that saying, doesn't it? I know whom I believed, and I am convinced. God is faithful. He's been faithful. Paul can look back over decades at this point and see the faithfulness of God to him. Deliverances that God has accomplished for him. Prayers that have been answered. Ministry that's been accomplished. I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard. That word guard is a military term. It was used of a soldier being assigned to guard a prisoner. And you'll remember what the cost was. What was the penalty for a soldier losing custody of a prisoner? He, yeah, and most of that was death. Right? So when Paul was shipwrecked on Malta, why, would, you know, why was the centurion, or why were the soldiers wanting to kill Paul and the prisoners? They're going to get away. Or at least they might get away. He is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. So Timothy, what's your response? How should you then respond to this? Retain the standard of sound words. And so this idea here of retain, hold on to, to have and to hold. The standard of sound words. The word standard is used twice. The other time it's used as an example. In fact, if you flip back, uh, it's just a couple pages. 1 Timothy 1.16. Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in, in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Example there is the word here. Uh, for retaining the standard. You hold on to the sound words. You hold on to sound doctrine, which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. So Timothy, you stay true to the truth. Don't wander aside. Don't turn aside. Don't wander astray. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Now I'm hoping that as you hear this, you, you see this, this, this theme here. I have, Paul says, I have entrusted to God certain things. God has in fact then entrusted other things to me. He has entrusted the gospel to me. He has, in, he has entrusted his truth to me. He has entrusted all of those aspects of how we should think, how we should act, how we should believe. He has entrusted that to me. Timothy, I've given it to you. In the next chapter, what's he going to tell Timothy? You take these things and you entrust them to faithful men who will then be able to teach others also. Right? There's a progression. There is um, there's a brotherhood here where the truth is handed. It is, it is given with the idea of I am giving to you a treasure. You guard it, but then you don't keep it. You pass it on to others because the, it's, not, it's, it's not valuable because it's in my possession. It's valuable because of what it is. And so you take it and you protect it. And when you, when you give it to others, you give it to them as it was delivered to you in its purity. You don't change the message. You take that message and you pass it on to others so that they will be able to do the same. And so Timothy, it's not about you. It's about the message. 
You guard it. You defend it. You earnestly defend the truth. Sir. Okay, so uh, for the benefit of the tape, the question is, um, is this command here to, um, you know, to guard the truth and to uh, pass the truth on to other faithful men? Is that only for pastors or how does the congregation fit into that as well? It is in one way, it is specific to Timothy. Yet, who of us in here, what, what is the, when you are sharing the gospel, when you are sharing the truth, when you are sharing doctrine, and doctrine and truth, those are interchangeable. Those are interchangeable terms. So when you're sharing the truth with someone, what is it that you are trying to accomplish in that person? Are you just trying to stick facts in their head? You know, we're going to run into it here. You know, uh, there are people who uh, are constantly learning and yet never come to the knowledge of the truth. So just having a bunch of facts stuck in here, is that of benefit to you? What is that called when I am trying to instill the gospel and instill truth into another? Discipleship. It's discipling. Is that just for pastors? No. That's for everybody. And so, is there a way, is there a sense in which, you know, Timothy, yeah, this is your specific responsibility? There is a sense of that. And yet, that carries through to every one of us. Every one of us as parents, what are we trying to do with our kids? Teach them the gospel. This is the truth of God. Yeah, I can teach you how to tie your shoes. And yeah, there's some benefit to you knowing how to tie your shoes. But there's real benefit in knowing how to trust the God who made you even when everything around you is falling apart. And so, no, we all get, we all are in here in that regard. Because that's what discipleship is. Teaching, it's about, and, and, and again, what is the best, well, I better be careful here. There's teaching by word, and there's also teaching by example, by action. And so you don't divorce those two, right? Verse 15, you're aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. What word is he referring to here? What concept is he referring to here, but he doesn't use the actual word? Ashamed. They're ashamed. And so they turned away. And again, when you talk about in Asia, is that going to sting for Paul? Probably, because where does Paul spend a significant portion of his ministry? In Asia. Paul bled in Asia. Paul was stoned in Asia. He was beaten there. He suffered many things on their behalf. And yet they're turning away from him. But not all. Not all. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus. He often refreshed me. And he was not ashamed of my chains. 
So when Onesiphorus gets to Rome, he tracks Paul down. And he doesn't stop until he finds him. And that's not a one-off, by the way, for Onesiphorus, right? Because he reminds Timothy, you know what services he rendered at Ephesus. And so here's a man who's not ashamed of the gospel. He's not ashamed of Christ's servant or servants. Now you'll notice that Paul doesn't give any more identifying information for Phygelus or Hermogenes or Onesiphorus. Why not? Because Timothy, in all likelihood, knows these guys. So again, if I'm writing, if I'm writing a letter to Sam, I don't need to, you know, if, I, if I'm talking about his daughter Samantha, I don't need to identify, you know, Samantha, you remember your daughter? I don't need to do that because he's fully aware of her, right? So the same thing here applies. And so again, what's Paul doing here? Yeah, there have been those who have turned away, but there are others who have not. And what does that do for Paul? One more reason to rejoice. One more reason to be grateful. One more reason to see that, you know, you remember, you remember Elijah after Mount Carmel? He goes and he's, he's ready to call it quits. You know, God, would you just please kill me now? Because I'm, I'm the only one left. And what was reality? Well, I still have 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. That's not seven. That's not 70. That's 7,000. There's plenty of reinforcements out there, Elijah. And the same here for Paul. Questions? All right, let's pray. Father, you building your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And there have been many who have suffered greatly for the gospel, who have suffered greatly for the truth. And they were simply following the example of our head, the Lord Jesus, who suffered in in a way that I can never comprehend. He created everything. He was rightfully Lord and Master of everything. And yet he was mocked. He was tortured. And willingly. So that he would accomplish salvation. Frankly, that he would bow that he would humble himself to your will even though it was at great cost to him and so father we ask today that that we would be faithful you have also called us you have saved us you have gifted us and perhaps uh, you know for many that's not going to be a position that's up front that's not going to be a position that's, that's necessarily, you know, the face. But you've gifted all of us for, for your service. You've equipped us. You've given us everything that we need. Father, help us to be faithful in our service to you. That it would be born out of a heart of gratitude. That we would see what great things you have done for us and that we would be motivated by love and adoration for you. It is very easy for us to be ashamed. It is very easy for us to cower, to draw back. We've had it so easy in our country. And now that the going, you know, the going's gonna get tougher. So Father, help us to be faithful. Help us not to shrink back. Help us to know the truth. That we may obey the truth and do it. 
and then that we may proclaim it and that we may teach it. You've sent us and you've placed us here. Then Father, help us to be faithful here. In Christ's name, amen.